Welcome to this Kaiser Series podcast, a three-part mini-series where I look into strength and conditioning through a leadership lens to try and learn what some of SNC's foremost practitioners think about some of the issues of the day. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute, and coming up in episode one, I'm talking to Conor McGoldrick, the head of strength and conditioning at Red Bull's Athlete Performance Center in Salzburg, Austria. Connor dialed in from the Eastern Alps to discuss his work with Red Bull's Extreme Athletes, which is a highly skilled but varied cohort. Some spend considerable time at the APC in Salzburg. Others just swing by now and again. It really depends on the athlete. Anyway, we delve into how Connor ensures his work complements the work of those around him, dealing with tensions as they inevitably emerge, and the difference between what he calls classic sports, let's say those with long traditions of Olympic or Paralympic representation, and cultural sports, which could include activities such as cliff diving or BMXing. And yes, BMXing has been an Olympic sport for more than a decade at this point, but there are clearly different challenges and they're all worthy of discussion. Looking a little further ahead, in episode 2 I'm going to speak to Emily Hall, the strength and conditioning coach with the under-19 Queensland Sapphires women's rugby league team. Keep an ear out for that in about two weeks' time. In episode 3, I will wrap things up with my chat with Johnny Parks, who has much to celebrate as the new associate head coach with the University of Carolina men's tennis program. But here and now is my chat with Conor McGoldrick, whose career journey to Red Bull has been wide and varied, as you're about to hear. Enjoy! So Connor, what was the path that led you to the Red Bull Athlete Performance Centre in Salzburg? And what does your day-to-day look like? Grew up in Belfast, Ireland, playing Gaelic football, hurling, two main sports, a bit of rugby and a bit of football or soccer, depending on where you're from. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to be selected then to, as part of the Sports Institute of Northern Ireland's Gaelic football sort of programme. Um, and that was my first exposure to, to S&C um, in a structured manner. Uh, studied sports science at the University of Ulster. Jordanstown, worked for a year then sort of coaching Gaelic football before deciding to study my master's in S&C, moved to London, studied the Middlesex on their, their strength and conditioning master's program, and then um, sort of forced myself in, we by crook with Saracens, and Phil Morrow was good enough to let me spend some time in there for a season, then Brighton Hove Albion, a couple of years, uh, then six years with the LTA, and then during the pandemic, I saw a job advertised here and thought, well, why not have a go? To be honest, probably didn't think I would get it. And um, two and a half years later, I'm, I'm here. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's the, the short version. It's quite a resume you've got there, Connor. And this is probably a good time to ask you to reflect on the interdisciplinary teams you've been part of. The question is probably around the steps you've taken to increase your knowledge of other disciplines. So what have you done? Yeah, so I suppose, again, starting at, at the very beginning, you know, when I was sort of in around Saracens, you know, really good culture. Everyone put in the same direction, very clear about, you know, even as an intern there, you could sort of see that there was a clear direction, a clear path that everyone was putting towards, led by the director of rugby and Martin Call at the time. Um, you know, I think then that continued when, when I moved on to Brighton. Brighton were in the process of setting up an, uh, an academy properly. So they had sort of center of excellence before that. And there's a clear sort of direction and, and common goal that everybody's working towards. And then again, I would have you know, been fortunate enough that, you know, Dan London at the LTA again was driving the direction that, that we were taking. I think that's the first part of sort of inter- interdisciplinarity, if that's the word. You know, everybody has a, 
a common goal and understanding of where they need to get to, what the focus is and what what the outcome is ultimately that we we have to get towards. So if that's not clear from the outset, then I think you can't can't truly be interdisciplinary because inevitably somebody will be put in a different direction. Um, if that's not sort of clear and agreed and, and well communicated from the start. When you have that clarity, how and in what ways does your work complement the efforts of those around you? Yeah, so I think so if I, if I take Red Bull as an example, you know, I know a lot of people say it, but it's definitely athlete-centered or athlete-first. Then as a result of that, you know, when you have that, that clarity, then if I'm supporting a rehab, for, for example, then it makes those conversations easier, clearer. If there's challenges to be had, it also makes those conversations easier simply because there's a predefined or an agreed direction. Um, I think you know it's a, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. I think some people use it and maybe don't fully how to describe it enough, don't fully realize it. So I think part, part of my learning has been that you know you, you have this like structured and unstructured way of learning what other disciplines are doing, and the unstructured way is sort of just almost like a child, you know, you're sort of watching and observing, absorbing, um, and learning just by being there and, and being around practitioners who are better than you. And then there's this more structured um, approach where you actively seek opportunities to observe, to learn, ask questions, have questions asked of you. And I think with that understanding, then it makes that interdisciplinary work easier. And one thing that uh, wasn't my idea, I can't take any credit for it, but uh, one of my colleagues, when I first started here at Red Bull, my second or third day, I was taken through the athlete journey, so to speak. And as part of that, then I was sort of Given the introduction, how the athlete was, I went through and did like a, a pseudo medical, had a check with the physio, undertook some sports psychology, mental performance testing, also did a treadmill, um, max, max endurance test, which, you know, full spiro and lactates and things. So like had the full, the full works for one day where I was just, you know, the, the athlete. And, um, you know, the good thing about that is then you're sort of seeing how people work in their environment. The language that they use yeah and i think those types of experiences are invaluable so i would say like obviously there's that unstructured piece and then there's the piece of really actively going and, and trying to understand you know the broader science sports science sports medicine world but also then what does someone's day in day out look like and i think if you can develop a better understanding of the person as well as the discipline then you should be on a good track i hope you're talking there about people and their disciplines. Yours is strength and conditioning. And so I wonder, are there natural partners for your work? Are there disciplines you team up with to work a problem, for example? Yeah, um, I think there's some fairly obvious ones, especially here at Red Bull. Um, so the nature of the work we're doing here, you know, athletes come and visit us for anywhere between a week and maybe a year, depending on circumstances. And then we also have our regular athletes who live in live nearby and use us as a training base. And so I think within each of those sort of categories of athletes, there's groups of people that you tend to work with most often. I mean, it goes without saying, physios in a rehab setting, very, very close alignment needed. And, and again, making sure that we're pulling in, uh, and talking uh, the same type of language, pulling the same direction um, throughout that process. And then from a sort of assessment point of view, we're quite lucky. We have a full team of Diagnostics here, so biomech and, and endurance specialists, 
you know, in the work they do, they give us assessments, they identify strengths and weaknesses, and ultimately that influences the programs that we then deliver to the athletes. So I think they're probably the most closely aligned. But then, you know, if we're training for a specific adaptation, nutrition will play a major role as well. So there's there's multiple examples, I could say, of of where you you need those other disciplines to help you do your job more effectively. And then what I would say is in any given case, then that might be more time with them, less time with them. But inevitably, there needs to be that sort of round table of, of conversation around the athlete and making sure everybody's aware of what, what the goal is, what we're working towards. And yeah, I don't know if that answers it, John. It certainly does, Connor. And it leads me to ask you, when you're working with athletes, either on an individual basis or with a team, what tend to be some of their biggest concerns from an S&C perspective? Yeah, so I think the biggest concern that I would see with an athlete is that, you know, they could come here, they could have five or six appointments with different people. And I think they worry that things aren't joined up because there's so many people to talk to, so many conversations had in the day. And so what they really want to see is that we we are aligned, we understand what's going on. You know, if they've been with a nutritionist, I have, I've had some sort of handover. It may not be the full detail, but I have an, an idea of what um, might be relevant for me in, in a training session or in... Uh, writing a program, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, you know, they're coming, the context of here is they're coming from maybe their own team. So it could be a footballer from one of the Red Bull clubs. He's got a team around him who know him really well. He comes here, he's meeting new practitioners. Um, we're developing that relationship. And I suppose that that communication between us builds trust with the athlete, that we are aligned, we know what we're doing, and that he's in or she is in the right place to to hopefully progress whatever whatever the, the problem or the goal may be. And when you're having interdisciplinary meetings, not everyone is going to agree, right? People have different opinions, different views. They're probably looking at it through their own lens as well. So how do you like to approach things when tensions emerge? What is the right path to a consensus as a team? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting topic and I'm, I'm sort of smiling as you're asking it because uh, I quite enjoy the debate at times, shall we say, maybe not the conflict, but the debate. I think it's a good thing. Generally, the approach is to sort of, you know, align on what the purpose of the the visit or the, the program is. And if, if we've done that early, then it makes those conversations a little bit easier because we can always come back and refer to that. So if we have new information and we need to take a make a step change and change direction, then that, that's also fine. But um, having that goal from the outset then makes it easier to have those conversations. I think key thing for me is identifying where people actually agree and reminding them on that um, and then working towards a more common ground. Inevitably, there's maybe some things that will come up that you just have to deal with and it's easy to take a complete uh, change of direction. That's fine. I think the key then is there. Uh, it's what's communicated, how it's communicated, when is it communicated? Have I got all the right people in the room? I have that discussion. If not, who's who's missing, and how can you how can you get them in the room? And a lot of the time here, there's probably the coach from the sport, or from the athlete, the individual athlete, and so then that external communication piece becomes really important in terms of managing expectation and and conflict in a in a group setting. But yeah, so. I think I think it's a good thing. I think it shows people care. I'd be worried if we didn't have conflict or disagreement at times. Um, but yeah, it's just 
but for me it's important to remember what the the starting point is what what the goal for the athlete is what the the purpose of the visit and here at the apc might be and then getting common ground and agreement and, and then driving that at home and will there be times when you take a step back Perhaps the problem in that moment isn't S&C focused, therefore your role isn't as significant, Connor. Do you have to be brave enough to say, okay, this is not what the athlete needs right now. It's more important for other disciplines to be involved at this stage? Yeah, I think it it happens. It doesn't happen loads, but um, it definitely happens. And it's, you know, it's not the easiest thing to sort of put your hand up and say, I'm not as important as some other people might be in the room right now. but. Um, I think, you know, to be able to reflect and sort of assess and identify the, the needs. So, I don't know, it could be related, something related to health and therefore the doctors and the physios are taking on a bigger a bigger role in, it, in an athlete's day or week or month. And I suppose my question is always more based around what can we do? As opposed to what can't we do? So if it was meant to be, you know, an intense training block, and we have two sessions a day, and well, you know, we might only have one session a day or one session every other day, and that's fine. But I suppose what I always ask for is clear guidance from from others. If it is a medical topic, for example, what 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 can we do? Because ultimately, they're an athlete; they need to work, they need to feel like they're athletes. And part of that is is the physical training side, alongside the recovery, the, the sports psychology, mental performance piece. So yeah, it's not always easy, but uh, I think there's a reflective piece that um, and self awareness piece that practitioners should be able to sort of self assess and and see where the opportunities lie, and that might not be as much as what was originally planned, but there's still still some work that could be done. I think it's just identifying that and agreeing that. You mentioned working with the coaches before. What are some of their biggest concerns when it comes to their athletes and S and C? Again, so you know, to give context. Like at Redwood, we have, I think it's roughly 850 individually sponsored athletes, 250 sporting disciplines, four football clubs, two ice hockey clubs, and you know, it's and academies that that are attached to those clubs as well. And so it's it's hard to give a definitive of. One thing that maybe are two things that coaches would be concerned about. I think if an if an athlete comes here without a coach, I think the biggest fear is like, are they going to maintain or develop fitness? You know, because they're sort of out of sight and and perhaps out of their their normal working environment. Where you know, especially in sport like athletics, they'll have the coach will have like control effectively of the program, both on track and off track. And they come here and they sort of hand that over to us a little bit. So. I, th- I think it's, you know, they, with relinquishing some control, then they worry that the athletes aren't continuing their development or they get a mixed message. Could be another one where the coach believes in, in one aspect and maybe they worry that we would say, no, actually, it's this way, not not the way your coach described it. So, yeah, it's it's that communication piece again comes comes into it. It's really important that, um, prior to arrival, we try and have a call with the athlete and coach, if possible, align on what 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 we're working towards. Everybody's on the same page, and then I think it's always good then for the coaches to have the contact details to see the see the faces and um, be able to ask questions as and when they need to. But yeah, I've, I think it's it's the unknown more than anything. What are they doing if if the coach isn't here with them? 
Back to the conversation in a moment, but first, a word about our main partners, Kaiser. For over 40 years, Kaiser has been at the cutting edge of the fitness industry. Kaiser Strength products utilize pneumatic technology and dynamic variable resistance, which allows the user to build strength at any speed. And it offers an unrivaled opportunity to work towards any training goal. Kaiser's cardio products are smooth, silent, compact, and designed with the user in mind. Built with Bluetooth integrated technology, the simplistic yet striking design offers unmatched user longevity. Simply put, Kaiser equipment raises the bar in elevating human performance for everyone. If you'd like to hear more, then please get in touch with the leaders team, who will be delighted to introduce you to the right person at Kaiser. Alternatively, visit kaiser.com to find out more. And now, back to the conversation. Connor, I wanted to move the conversation onto performance behaviours, the habits of champions and elite athletes ultimately. Do you believe that winning behaviours, those you can identify in the best athletes, are universal or are they not? Yeah, contentious one. Um, maybe not. I think I think that there's... <laughs> I think if you had asked me that before getting to, to Austria with Red Bull, I probably would have said, yeah, you know, you know I've seen... I was lucky enough to observe Andy Murray on and off court and um during during my time at the LTA and you know you, you see professional footballers and what they are willing to do and and then you come to a Red Bull and you know those behaviors are here but perhaps not in everyone who's achieving highly. What I would say is pretty common is they tend to love what they do and therefore they do a lot of it. But you know we're dealing with sports like uh, how I describe it, maybe like culture driven sports as opposed to maybe competitive sports. Um, so we do have the footballs, the track, the, the skiing athletes, so on and so forth, who are competing at World Cup level and, you know, more classic sort of athletes. And then we have guys who kite surf, um, skate, um, even sports where there's competition within it, you know, Van Hill mountain biking. Their received wisdoms of a sport are probably very different. So a skateboarder might train, might not train, but they will spend a lot of time on their sport, just like other athletes. So I would say it's a little bit of a, a cop-out because it depends. Um, but yeah, I think I think the common theme is that they love doing what they're doing and they do it a lot. But what that means to different people can, can manifest itself in different weeks, days, months, years. Um, you know, you get some project athletes in here, so athletes aren't competitive in a sport, but they're doing pretty crazy things. And um, one guy came just during COVID, and unfortunately, he wasn't able to complete it because of politics. But he came in, and he said, "So I'm preparing myself to throw myself off five waterfalls in Siberia in ten days," um, and he described it as, "I'm preparing myself for five car crashes in five days because these waterfalls are sort of forty meter drops," and so. You know, this is a guy who's not a competitive athlete, but realizes that in order to do his sport, he has to work hard. He has to train hard. He has to look after his body. And I wouldn't say all athletes feel the same way, but it is an interesting hobby because some people are really good for other reasons, perhaps. Well, that's enlightening anyway. And it's a shame we never got to see that feat come to pass. But Connor, where possible then, do you try and make a link between winning behaviors and physical development? Do you try to demonstrate to athletes that if they act a certain way 
or do certain things or adopt certain habits, they can actually improve their physical development. Yeah, so there's definitely a link, and I think the biggest link is consistency. And then, you know, they will consistently practice their sport. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they maybe only realize they need some other stuff when they get injured, for example, or they haven't had a good run of successful results. But, you know, they're they're always going to consistently practice their sport. And, And if we can gain just a little bit of consistency away from their sport, whether it be, you know, and again, it's so case dependent, but it could be simple mobility practices. It could be um, body weight exercises. It could be, you know, not everyone has to lift, uh, get underneath the leg press and lift heavy or get underneath the bar and, and so on and so forth. There's many ways to, to get to it. And I think one of the things that we try and exemplify here is that, you know, there, there's many ways to an outcome. So if we have clarity of, of what we're trying to work towards, then we can be flexible based on the person in front of us, first and foremost, and then take their sport and their athleticism and their kind of after that. So what's going to work for you might not work for this person over here, but can we develop a level of consistency in some work which we believe in the long term will have a positive transfer to their sporting endeavours? Um, for sure, it's it's a hard task. There's probably a, an education piece, not just you know classic SSC sports science support trying to educate people on the why and the benefits and yeah a lot of the time it's a slow burner i would say but yeah i definitely see that you know that consistency that they apply to other sport if they can take just a, a bit of that and apply it to some other aspects away from their sport then they'll be a better rounded athlete as a result so you say it can be a slow burner but what are some of the means and ways you can reinforce good behaviors with athletes so i think one of the one of the cheats is probably trying to identify uh, a quick win. So what can I do with this athlete that's going to make a difference? Um, even if it's short-lasting, make them feel like there's a benefit to this. I think then you can develop a level of buy-in from that. The other thing that I'm a big proponent of is um, trying to get the athlete a degree of ownership on, on what they're doing, when they're doing it, and what that looks like. Um, Ultimately, I think if we're trying to affect change and show a benefit, if you're trying to throw something at somebody and they have no interest in it, then you know it's not it's not going to stick. So I think if if we have a a quick win and we can make the athlete feel like they are, and this is an important piece, I think that they are in control or they have ownership over aspects of what they're doing, then then I think you have a better chance of making that that change and. Um, Ultimately, hopefully delivering a positive result, which was in this example would be a more consistent behavior. And when an athlete suffers a setback of some description, whether it's in their program or if they've picked up an injury that's halted their progress, what are some of the ways you can help them to get back on track? Um, tough one, isn't it? Um, as I think, if you've played any sport, you've sort of been there yourself where you maybe get a, an injury or a bad result and it, it affects you. I suppose if we use an injury, for example, I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's a case of asking what can they do? You know, they're going to spend a lot of their day maybe sore or unable to do something that yesterday they could do. And if I'm training with them for an hour or 90 minutes, can can I show them things that they can do, take their mind away from that and try and, you know, work on some other aspects that maybe have been neglected? So can we make what maybe as a strength, a super strength away from whatever problem they're having? Can we bring a weakness up 
a level and make it less of a problem and, and make them feel like all these all these athletes here they they want to move they want to jump they want to run they want to land um again just what what can they do and building a program around that i think can be one step in and all of that and then you know we're lucky here that we have you know mental performance support psychology support we have nutrition support we have some really great physios and, and doctors in the, in the house here so um again it's not reliant upon just one group of people to do that there's a whole team around the athlete to try and try and put that direction but yeah as i say what what can they do is the most important question for me I think that moves us on nicely to the question of gamification in training. Is that a thing? Do athletes like it? You, you, you must have seen a few things on Red Bull, have you? On the, on the um, <laughs> One or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'll caveat this by saying I'm definitely not an expert in, in any of this. Um, but yeah, I think it, it is a thing that's growing, developing. I think it's probably been more mainstream with us than, than uh, people really realize. You know, you've... I don't know how many thousands of people around the world cycling on Swift every day. Effectively, it's a gamification of cycling. You know, I think that it's it's more and more likely to develop as we go. We have a, a leg press here in the APC, ED robotic leg press, made by a Swiss company. And you know, you'll see one of our stunt pilots, Dario Costa, is quite often posting on his Instagram that he's on this and doing different exercises on this and. Um, it's definitely gamified leg press, but what you don't see is when Dario comes off, he has had a strength workout in his legs through doing this. And that's not to say there's not other functions in this leg press. As an example, you know there is protocols around ACL which aren't gamified, but yeah, it's definitely a thing. And I think it's you know, Strava things like this, anything where you're winning points, earning badges, things like this. This for me is the gamification of fitness, and um, I think it. It's probably a field along with virtual reality, reality, augmented reality. These types of things are we're going to drive it on in the future, for sure. That's brilliant, Connor. I wanted to wrap things up with everyone's favourite, the quick fire round. Here we go. First question: Early mornings or late nights? Late nights, every time. <laughs> and what do you do to de-stress? Yeah, so like a lot of people, I train, um, try and eat good food. Uh, and because I'm an English speaker living in Germany, I try and learn some German. Well, living in Austria, sorry, I'm an English speaker living in Austria. Should they'll kill me if I say that again? <laughs> English speaker living in Austria, uh, so you know some German uh, through Babel or whatever. So um, it's a nice way to relax. Give me one word or phrase to describe your leadership or coaching style. Uh, open, open. I would say. Um, open to new things, open to discussion. And what's your top tip when traveling for work? I was trying to think about this one. Um, yeah, obviously it depends where you're going, but I think um, one thing that I like to try and do is eat where the locals eat. Um, Sensible advice. <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, you're in a few countries where the reputation might not be super for food, but actually if you follow the locals, you tend to do okay. And a soft skill you're keen to keep developing? Um, trying to get better at self-reflective practice and trying to get better at capturing that and 
um, making actionable sort of plans or outcomes from that. Um, I won't say I'm doing a great job at it, but I, I'm trying. I think it's I'm still in the habit forming stage. I would say, um, but I think it's a a potential undervalued tool. Is there a trend across the high performance space that you're monitoring closely? Uh, monitoring closely might be pushing it, but um, through some colleagues here at the APC, um, becoming more and more sort of interested in markerless tracking. Um, how we might use that in terms of building profiles of athletes, um, understanding patterns, risks, etc. Um, I think that that could be an interesting avenue in the future. And my final question, what's the best coaching advice you've ever been given? Keep it simple. <laughs> Keep it simple. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think that would be the, the best one. That is sound advice indeed. Conor McGoldrick, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, John. Thank you very much.